Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade, Wednesday, March 12, 2014. We're going to start winding down our Christianity 101 series that we've been listening to with Pastor Ernie Lassman. Yeah, that's right. Just two more weeks, this week and next, and then that series will be at an end. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down, and we stop, and we open up our Bibles, and we compare what people are saying and see if it actually squares with what God's Word really says. And sadly, unfortunately, we find that a lot of things don't square and uh, sound doctrine matters. That's what it basically comes down to. Now, from time to time, I get the question from people, what is it that you Lutherans believe regarding the last times? You know, what, 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 what is Lutheran eschatology? And I, I got to tell you, you know, um, I, I've been a Lutheran for mm, going on the better part of uh, 25 years now. And uh, I can say this, Lutherans don't spend a lot of time on it. They don't. And I think that's right. And so people have accused of uh, accused Lutherans of having an underdeveloped eschatology. Yeah, well, that may be true. Um, but uh, let, let's just put it this way. We don't get into the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib thing at all. Um, we're closer to amillennialism, but that's not exactly the right way of talking about it. Uh, there's a, a growing camp within Lutheranism that's into what's called proleptic eschatology. Uh, I don't think uh, Lastman is into that. Um, but uh, when it basically boils down to is this, is that um, in our liturgical lectionary, there's about three weeks a year where we very strategically preach through passages that talk about the end of the world. And you can kind of sum it up this way. Um, we believe that uh, Christ will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's our big summary statement, and that's really from the Nicene Creed. But um, Pastor Lastman's going to unpack uh, eschatological themes in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith in our Christianity 101 series, and this is going to be part one of a two-part discussion on the last things, and uh, we'll, in fact, we're just going to get right into it. So without any further ado, here is Ernie Lastman. Last things. 
Well, there's lots of speculation about death, and uh, about life after death, I should say. Uh, really, you know, logically, there's only a couple of options you have here about life after death. Yeah, option, uh, uh, option number one, option number one, there's no life after death. You live, you die. Well, if that's true, then life's not very meaningful, is it? And you grab all the money and fun you can, and then you die. And that's, that is a philosophy that's been in the history of the world. Option number two, there is some sort of something after death. Oh, well, the moment you say that, now you have several other options. What is that something other? Is it nirvana of Hinduism? What is it? Okay. okay. And uh, in addition to that, how do you get it? For example, some people who don't think very clearly say, well, you know, everybody goes to heaven. Oh, is that right? Does a mass murderer go to heaven? Well, no, he doesn't go to heaven. Well, why not? Now you see you're starting to put standards down, right? Well, why doesn't the mass murderer get to go to heaven? Well, you, you see what I'm trying to say here? So you have all these questions. And uh, so the, my point is, the Bible gives an answer to this. And of course, we Christians believe it's the answer to this question. And what we're going to learn tonight is, yes, there is life after death. And that either means hell and damnation, or eternal bliss and joy that we're going to talk about. And it all comes back in the reality that this man, Jesus, is one day going to come back. We're going to talk about that tonight. And we'll see him. And nobody else, no one will any longer argue about whether there's really a Jesus or not. Okay. So that's kind of what we're going to cover tonight, generally speaking. So, number one. Ours is a Savior of infinite love and power. One who's overcome the sharpness of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Because we know Him. Ah, there's that phrase again. And we know that's just not head knowledge. But it's also heart knowledge to have a relationship with Him. To trust in Him. We ask with no great trembling, what happens when a believer dies? Now please notice, you might want to highlight or circle it, a believer. And I'm going to talk about the unbeliever in just a moment. But the following Bible passages pertain only to Christians, believers in Christ. And then I'll get to the unbeliever in just a minute. So in our green, in our green booklet, we have several passages here. Ecclesiastes 12.7. Notice that's the Old Testament. The dust returns to the earth. That means that when the body dies, it rots in the ground. Right? That doesn't sound very pretty, but that's what happens. The dust returns to the earth. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now remember, this is a Christian only. Matter of fact, we'll see the essence of death from a biblical standpoint is the separation of the Spirit from the body. And again, here I'm using the word soul and spirit as synonyms. So the soul leaves the body, the Spirit leaves the body. Biblically speaking, that's what death is. And that's why death is so scary. Because despite what you may have heard elsewhere, death is not normal. And if you remember the fall in the Garden of Eden, you'll go, oh yeah, it's not normal. Did God create mankind to die? No. Why did death come into the world? Because of sin. That means when you and I die, something is happening to us that was never intended to happen. What's that? Our soul or our spirit leaves our body. That's not normal. Despite what other philosophies may say, despite what other religions may say, despite what some uh, other medical doctor... That's not normal. That's why it's so scary. Okay? But you'll notice for a Christian, while the dust goes to the ground, where does the soul or spirit go to? To God. Now, just to remind you, I'll give you the passages and just tell you what they say, because you're going to remember them. 
write down Genesis 2-7. Genesis 2-7 says that God created Adam from where? The dust of the ground. Remember, he got his name Adam from the Hebrew word for ground, which is Adamah. And God did what to this, to this dust? He breathed into him the life, right? So there we have the dust and the breath, and then now we have a human being. And then write down Genesis 3.19. Because now that sin came into the world, God said you will die, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So in the creation, God made man out of the dust and breathed life into him. So his soul and body, he's a unit. Okay? But in death, an abnormality happens. The soul or spirit leaves the body and the body dies and returns to the dust, which is a punishment for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.8, this is the great apostle Paul writing his second letter, the church in Corinth, Greece. He says, we would rather leave our home in the body and go and live with the Lord. Now, this is also uh, a death. To leave our home in the body is the same thing as Ecclesiastes 12.7. To leave the home means for the soul to leave the body. And it says to be with the Lord. Well, can you see that's the same thing as saying, and the spirit returns to, to God. The soul leaving the body is to be with the Lord. Okay? So what we're saying so far, and we have another one yet to come, Christians die just like everybody else. And that's all you can see. But in the unseen realm, something else is going on. When a Christian dies, their body goes to the ground just like a non-Christian and rots and turns back to dust. But in the world you can't see, their soul or spirit that has left their body goes to be with God or Christ, as we're going to see, until the day of the resurrection, which I'll show you, when the soul or spirit that's been with God and Christ will be put back into the resurrected body, as we're going to see. Now, this is very comforting because, A, death is scary, even for Christians. But death is softened knowing that my soul or spirit in this ugly process called death is going to be in the very hands of my loving God. That's where my soul or spirit is going to be. Now we see it in the next Bible passage, Acts seven fifty nine says, As they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, what? Receive my spirit. Now, Stephen is the first recorded martyr for Christ in the Bible. There may have been others. We don't know about He's the first recorded one. And what happens here, he gives a long sermon to the unbelieving Jewish leaders. And at the end of that long sermon, they stone him to death. And as they're throwing all these rocks at him, and he's dying, he's telling Jesus to receive his spirit. So... Uh, Again, we see the idea of the body's left behind, but the Spirit goes to be with God, or once Jesus comes along, with Jesus, because Jesus is God and man in one person. Now, there's also another one I'd like you to look at. Write this one down. Philippians, and we'll look it up, 1, 20 to 24. Uh, maybe we start at uh, 19 there, since it's sort of normal. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Let me pause here. If you don't know it, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian congregation while he's in prison. He's been arrested. 
And while he's sitting in jail, he doesn't know if he's going to be found innocent and let go, or he's going to be found guilty and executed. That's the context. Okay, 20. I eagerly expect and hope I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now look at 21. For to me, to live is Christ. What he means is, to live for Christ gives me meaning and purpose in life. And then what does he say? He says, and to die is gain. You know where we're going with this, don't you? Because the Spirit goes to be with Christ. 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, he says, if they find me innocent and I go back out, hey, I can keep being an apostle and that would be good for you. Okay, all right. Yet, what, I sh- what shall I choose? I don't know. Look at 23. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. In other words, okay, so they execute me. What's, what's bad about that? Because my soul will be with Christ, even though my body will be buried or whatever. But look what he said. Which is, which is what? Which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So he's basically saying, hey, look, if they execute me, that's okay with me. My soul will be with Christ. But when I look at it from a different perspective, it's probably better for you that I'm released and I can continue to be an apostle and strengthen you in your faith. Now, point number one, and I'll do this very quickly because I have to watch my time tonight. We have so much to do. We know very, 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 very little about the condition of the soul or spirit in death. Very little. You basically saw most of what we know what Paul says. We know it's with God or Christ, and it's, it's much better. It's much better. But that's about all we know. Some well-meaning pastors, preachers, including, unfortunately, even some Lutherans, say far too much about the condition of the soul in death. We know very little about that. Now, for example, when I uh, had my first call on Vancouver Island as a young pastor... I had a gentleman dying of cancer, and he asked me when he died if he'd see his mother. And I said, I don't know. And I don't. Because when the soul dies, of course, the soul doesn't have any eyes, okay? And there's nothing in the Bible that says you're going to see your mother with your soul. Now, listen to what I say so you don't get confused. Then I told him, however, I do know this. When you're raised from the dead, then you'll see your mother. Do you hear the difference? And what happens is well-meaning pastors often say things about the soul with Christ that are only true for the resurrected state. And that's why some people I've encountered don't understand the resurrection is so important because if you have everything with your soul being with Jesus, what's the point of the resurrection? So, very little known about the state of the condition of the soul, although it's good, but we just can't say a lot more than that, otherwise you're talking about the resurrected state. Now, let's talk about uh, the unbeliever. We have very few passages about the unbeliever, and uh, I can only speculate why that's true. Uh, Probably one reason we have very little is, you know, why would you want to know other than idle curiosity? Or that you don't want this to happen to you. But we do have one, and that is in um, Luke 16, 19. Let's look that up. Luke 16, 19. 
And I think it's so clear it's going to be, need very little explanation. It's rather obvious, I think. Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, Abraham's side is simply a Jewish way of saying to God, or heaven, or paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, and let me do this again. You've seen this before. I'm going to do it again for you. The hell here is Hades, not Gehenna. And we'll come back to this. Hades is only for souls or spirits. Gehenna is for, uh, let's say, spirits. I could have put spirits over there. And bodies. In other words, Gehenna is the judgment day hell that we haven't gotten to yet. It's empty right now. This is the judgment day that will hell for last forever. Hades, however, is already in existence and it's where the souls of unbelievers go. As we're going to see as this develops. The rich man also died and was buried. So where did his body go? It's in the ground rotting, right? But in hell, so what's in hell? It's the, it's the rich man's soul. Soul. Where he was in what? Torment. Now, when Paul wanted his soul to leave the body, to be with Christ, he said it would be much what? Better. The soul of the unbeliever is not better. The soul of the unbeliever is in what? Torment already before the day of the resurrection. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now don't get confused by tongues and fingers. These have to be figures of speech because the soul doesn't have any tongues or fingers, right? But how do you communicate what's happening to a soul when you can't picture it? So this is a figure of speech. 25, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here. That's the same with Paul. Paul said to be with Christ would be what? Far better. But you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and, a, and a you, a great chasm has been fixed. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross over from there to us. In other words, once you die... That's it. Ball game, over. 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Now you can tell in the context that we're talking about Hades, and not the last day judgment hell, because this guy's dead, but he still has brothers who are alive, living in this world. Right? See that? 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And this is where we used this passage before. They have the Bible. If they don't want to go to hell, let them believe the Bible. No, Father Abraham said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they repent. 31, he said to them, if they don't listen to the Bible, they won't be convinced even if somebody raises from the dead. So while the soul of a believer goes to be with Christ in paradise, the soul of an unbeliever already goes to Hades, where it's already in torment, waiting for the day of the judgment when his soul in Hades will be reunited to his raised up body, and then the whole person, body and soul, will go to Gehenna, that we'll get to. 
that we'll get to. Now, I, I skipped over one passage real quickly. Let's go back up to Luke 23, 43, under number one, which has about the soul of a believer again. Uh, this is the thief on the cross, remember, that's crucified with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, I tell you this very day, you'll be where? With me, with me in paradise. Do you keep getting the idea that the soul of a Christian is with God, with Christ in paradise? Yeah, although we know, don't know all about that. So what do we learn from these passages? And then we'll see if you have any further comments just on this one point. From this we learn, at death, the soul separates from the body, which returns to the dust. The soul of the believers immediately received in heaven, and the we could add, he doesn't have the rest of it here, the soul of an unbeliever in Hades. So from the outward standpoint, it looks like it, Christians don't have any advantage. They die and they rot, and unbelievers die and they rot. But what you can't see is what's happening to their soul. That's the difference. And of course, that'll show up on the day of the resurrection. Yes? If uh, the rich man went to, soul went to Hades. Yes. And then there's a resurrection. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't come out of Hades. Yes, he does. I, I just said that. Well, he's already been judged. Uh, now, did you see what he said? Did you see what he said? Yeah. See, that, 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 that's what I said a moment ago about the soul. If everything's done with the soul, then why do you need a resurrection? Because only his soul is being tormented. He's going to be raised up from the dead, and his soul that's been tormented is going to be put back in his raised up body, and then his whole person, body and soul, will go off to Gehenna where he'll even suffer more in his raised up body. Yeah. Which I'm going to show you with the resurrection. Yes. So a believer goes to Christ. So a believer's soul goes to Christ. And there really is, well, we don't know if they are conscious of anything. Right? That's a good question. We, we would say, and see, this is where it's t- tough because we don't have very many Bible passages. So we have to be very guarded. And I, would, I would say, based upon my knowledge of the Bible, my knowledge of the Lutheran Church, and my knowledge of Christian dogma and history, is that there is a level of consciousness. In that the soul is aware it's, it's what? It's safe. It's, it's, it's content. It's, it's, it's with Christ. As Paul says, it's much what? Better. But beyond that, we can't say much more. But hey, that's fine with me. That's enough for me. And so, conversely, <laughs> yes. the unbelieving soul in Hades has a consciousness that is not... Exactly. A consciousness of torment. A consciousness of, uh, of, 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 uh, of judgment. Yes. Yeah, and we can't say much more because it doesn't spell it all out. We can only, and I don't want to find out that other one. Yeah, yeah. Um, now the one thing I want to add to here, and then we've got to move on here in a minute. Um, the Roman Catholic Church teaches purgatory. There's nothing in the Old Testament or the New Testament about purgatory. Nothing. Uh, it's a long story. I don't have time to do it, but you can read it in any good uh, theology history book. There's a clear development of purgatory that the Roman Catholic Church developed starting around the year 500 to 1,000, as I told you. And purgatory is based upon Plato, a Greek pagan philosopher, okay? and uh, Roman philosophy, and then some books that never made it into the Old Testament, specifically a book called Second Maccabees, and there's, but there's nothing in the Bible. The purpose of purgatory, if you don't know, in the Roman Catholic system, purgatory is not for unbelievers, but believers. And the teaching is, of course, you're not good enough to have your soul go directly to heaven. Well, you hear a denial of justification there. So your soul has to make a pit stop before it goes to heaven. First, it has to go to purgatory. 
And at purgatory, your soul, even though you believe in Jesus, even though Jesus has died for your sins, your soul will have to be punished for the temporal punishments of your sin that were not finished out in this world. And then once your soul is punished, then it will eventually move on to heaven. And there's nothing, two, two problems with that. Number one, it's not in the Bible. And number two, it's a total denial that Jesus suffered for us. Those are the two main problems. Not in the Bible anywhere. And it denies the atonement of Christ, who, who was punished for all of our sin. So there's no purgatory. Uh, number two, what momentous event will occur at the end of time? Would you highlight or underline the phrase, at the end of time? Because time will come to an end. I don't know if you ever thought about this. And of course, scientists and philosophers can wax eloquent about these things. But time is a creation. Before God created, there's only eternity. The moment He creates, that's also the beginning of space and time. In the what? Beginning, which means the beginning of time. And time's going to come to an end. Because I'm going to show you tonight that He's going to destroy this whole universe and create a new one. So at the end of time, the world's going to come to an end. Time's going to come to an end. The universe is going to come to an end. What will happen? Well, Jesus is coming back. Acts 1.11 in our first Bible passage uh, says, This Jesus, this is an angel talking to the apostles. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now we can look up tons of passages. We're going to see a few others. But all throughout the New Testament, it says that Jesus is coming again. Now here, you know, what would be the point of being a Christian if Jesus isn't coming again? Somebody explain that to me? So you see, this, this is kind of like the resurrection. What's the point of Christianity if there's no resurrection? What's the point of Christianity if Jesus isn't coming back again? So this is a fundamental doctrine in the Christian church. Jesus Christ that we talk about all the time is coming back. And visibly. That's what he says. It, you, that you saw him. Let's look at the next one. It's very similar. Revelation 1.7. Look. He's coming with the clouds. The clouds in the New Testament often, well, Old Testament too for that matter, is a symbol for the presence of God. Okay? God. Everyone will see Him, including those who pierced Him. Now, that's going to be a bad hair day, isn't it, for the Roman soldiers that pierced Him? Yeah. Everyone will see Him. There's no secret coming of Jesus. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about the rapture and all that stuff. There is no secret coming of Jesus. You hear anybody talk about a secret coming of Jesus, just switch the channel or walk out of the church. There is no secret coming of Jesus. Everybody will see him. There won't be like, uh, gee, Fred, uh, I heard a rumor last week that Jesus was in New York. Did you hear that? No. Nobody's going to miss this. Nobody's going to miss this. Okay, Matthew 25, 31. This is Jesus himself speaking. And this is towards the end of a, a, a parable that he's talking about. The, when the Son of Man comes in his what? Glory. His glory. Oh, I don't have my light out, but let me hold up my plastic orange light. His glory means I turn the light on, right? Which means as a human being, Jesus Christ uses, always and fully uses his power as what? God. That's the Jesus you're going to see when he comes back. No humble Jesus, not born in a manger. Not walking around or coming into Jerusalem on a donkey or being crucified. We'll see Jesus Christ in all His glory and power as God, as a human being, as God. And all the angels with Him and He will sit on His throne of glory. And a throne, of course, uh, this doesn't mean a literal throne, but a throne is a symbol for what in the ancient world? Who sits on a throne? 
a king. So this is a symbol for his rule. Because he already rules. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now, doesn't he? But that's a statement of faith. We don't see that, do we? Um, when he comes back, we'll see it with our own eyes. Jesus Christ, King, God in human form, rules all things. That's who you're going to see. I think I want to be on his side when that happens. This is a very interesting Bible passage. The next one, as far as I know, as far as I know, this is the only Bible passage that says it like this. The he refers to God in the context. God has fixed a day. Fixed a day. On which he, God, will judge the whole world with what? Justice. That means he's not going to be able to be bribed. He won't be influenced. He won't be manipulated. So like some of our judges, it will be pure justice, right? Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and those who have not, okay? By a man he has chosen. And the man, of course, is Jesus. Jesus Christ will judge the world. And, of course, he can do that because he's God in human form. Every human being will stand not just before God, but before Jesus on the judgment day. Now, of course, if these things aren't true, it doesn't matter, does it? But boy, if these things are true, and of course we believe they are, this is profound, important things. As a matter of fact, it fits in with my sermon that I'm working on right now for Sunday because it talks about, my sermon is going to talk about telling as many people about Jesus as possible. Because on the day of the judgment, if somebody's on the wrong side, they would say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Now, a fixed day, I always joke about this, um, a fixed day, be sort of, and don't, don't walk out and say that I told you when Jesus is coming back. This is just an illustration. But for example, if the fixed day is October 31st, now why would I pick that day? Halloween. No, not Halloween! All saints. All saints. What else? Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses. 1517, October 31st. You're right, but you were close. Okay, October 31st, uh, 2065, at 10 o'clock in the morning, if that's the fixed day, that's the end of the world. So, God's not going, well, what do you think? Give him a little bit more time? Ah, uh, yeah, we'll give him a little bit more time. According to this Bible passage, and of course it makes sense from God's standpoint, because He knows what? All things. The day's fixed. Now, whether that could be the next five minutes, could be another 1,200 years. I have no idea which we're going to see. But it's fixed. And when that time comes, that's it. Okay, Mark 13, 32. Jesus says, No one knows when that hour, day or hour will be. And would you highlight that, please? No one knows. So if you ever hear a TV preacher or anybody else, or even if a Lutheran, which he shouldn't be doing it, tells you he knows when Jesus is coming back, change the channel or leave the church. Because Jesus himself says what? No one knows. No one knows. knows. So you're dealing with a false prophet, which doesn't seem to stop him. There's been several churches and individuals who have predicted the coming of Christ more than once and been wrong, but they just keep what? Predicting like you won't catch on. Mm-hmm. Yes, Clarence. Um, it says um, the heaven, heaven will pass the name of all the boys in the elements. I'm not there yet. Hang on. I, I'm not to that passage yet. You're ahead of me. I'm going to get there. 
Just bear with me. I'm going to get there. I'm going to explain it. Then if I don't do it, you can, uh, you can ask me. What I want to stay with is no one knows when this is going to be. Which means we're not going to look up all the passages. If you don't know when he's coming, you have to be what? All the time. And you're ready all the time. As your faith is in him, and you remember your baptism, all the promises, walk daily in repentance, seeking God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ every day, you're ready. Whether you're watching a ball game or you're TV, watching TV or doesn't matter, driving your car, you'll be ready. So nobody knows when he's coming. Now let's get to the one that Clarence asked about. Second Peter 3.10 The day of the Lord will come like a what? Okay. Which is just like you don't know when he's coming, do you? When you leave, do you plan for the thief? Do you put out the apple and milk and water and juice? Well, you know, the thief is coming tonight, dear, so we have to put out some food for him. A thief is just the opposite. You don't know. You come home one day and what? You look around and somebody's been in our house. It caught you off guard. That's the way the coming of Jesus is going to be. All right. So, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay, now. Then the heavens. Now, the heavens here means the universe. Remember the word heaven can be used in three ways in the Bible. And you have to go by the context. The heavens can be the firmament or the atmosphere around the planet Earth. Heavens can be the dwelling of God. Or heaven can be the whole created universe. This is the created universe. So the created universe will pass away. And we'll see more passages on this in a little bit later. In other words, this whole universe will be destroyed with a loud noise. If I may be uh, tongue-in-cheek so bold, this is going to be the reverse Big Bang. (laughs) The whole universe will be destroyed with a loud noise, noise, and the elements, he means the elements that make up the universe, will be dissolved with fire. And the earth and all the works upon it will be Burned up. Now, the reason this is important, Clarence, and you have to just be patient with me so I can get there later on tonight. This universe is going to be destroyed because I'm going to show you a little bit later tonight, he's going to create a new universe. This universe has been impacted and influenced by sin and death. And so uh, he's going to create a new world where there is no sin and death. And we're going to see with our new resurrected Bodies. Now, some people ask, well, why with fire? Well, there's probably many ways I could answer that. But his, remember when he first created the universe, it was perfect. It wasn't any sin. Nothing wrong with it, right? At the end of the creation, he said everything was very good. Then it's sin and death that corrupted this whole world. Now, fire is a purifier, isn't it? For example, if we were in a primitive village in some third world country, a primitive village, and some dreaded disease came through there, one way to control that dreaded disease, you would burn as much as you could. You would burn the clothing. You would burn this because that's the only way to get rid of this, this uh, corruption, right? Well, that's kind of the way God's going to do with the universe. He's going to purify the universe by destroying it with fire. And then he's going to create a new universe, I'm going to show you, where there's not going to be any sin, death, or anything. It'll be sort of like paradise restored, as we're going to see. So this universe will be destroyed. Now, Clarence, did you want to add to that or comment uh, on that? If everything is rebuilt, who's going to be in the rebuilding? Well, we're going to get there. Let me tell you quickly, because I'm going to show you in just a little bit, everything I'm saying is going to happen as fast as you can blink your eyes. 
Okay? Fast as you can blink your eyes. But what we have to do, Clarence, is I still have to speak sequentially. For example, before the resurrection of the dead, Jesus has to first come back. Okay? So we're going to be raised with new glorified bodies. And I can't, I can't draw a picture of this for you. But because of our new glorified bodies, we will survive all this because we will be eternal and immortal, just like Jesus Christ. And then he'll create a new world where we're going to live in, on a new planet Earth. Well, is this his first coming or second coming? This is his second coming. The second coming. This is the second coming. Yeah. So, let's get this all straight. What we said so far, Clarence, he's going to come back visibly. He's going to come back in all his glory as God. And one of the things he's going to do in all his glory as God, he's going to destroy this whole vast universe with fire because he's going to create a new world. So, this is his second coming. And then 1 Peter 4, 7, we'll just do this very quickly as I'm watching the clock. The end of all things is at hand. In other words, it's eventually going to happen. So from this we learn at the end of time, Christ will come back to the earth. He will return visibly, in glory, suddenly, on a day known only to God, which will mark the end of the world to judge mankind. Now I'm not going to look over those sign passages because I don't have time and it's not really that critical. Let me just say one thing on those passages and others. If we do not know when Jesus is coming, okay, if we do not know when Jesus is coming, and we don't, then it is inappropriate, it is a wrong use of the Bible to try to look at certain Bible passages to tell us when He's coming. And the purpose of those passages, which you can look up on your own, is not to tell us when he's coming. The purpose of the passages is to tell us he's coming. And what those passages say is the world we live in, if we have open eyes and we have spiritual eyes, is to remind us this world is not as permanent as it looks. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, death, Corruption. Okay. And all these things are to remind Christians this world is not permanent. One day this world is going to, and we're going to see a Bible passage that says this, pass away. And that's, that's what all those passages mean to remind you that He is coming and this world is not permanent, it's temporary. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills, and when we come back, we're going to continue with this week's lecture on The Last Things with Pastor Ernie Glassman. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on eschatology. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church Day Select. 
Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun-stand-still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you don't get this kind of in-depth biblical teaching regarding the last times. Instead of, well, you get speculation and weird ideas. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right. Now, you'll notice that Pastor Lastman, in walking us through eschatology, is being very, very careful to not go beyond 
what any of the biblical texts say, noting the fact that, well, there's precious few details given to us in Scripture about eschatology. So we got to stick close to them and not go beyond them, which I think he's doing a fine job. So without any further ado, here's the balance of today's lesson on eschatology, part one, by Pastor Ernie Lastman. Here we go. Okay, let's go to number three, top of the page. Okay, Jesus is coming back. What's he going to do when he comes back and uh, destroys the universe? John 5, 28. This is Jesus speaking. The hour is coming when all, would you circle highlight the word all, who are in their graves will hear him, the hymn is Jesus calling, and will what? Come forth. Now, Not only will Christians be raised from the dead, all people will be raised from the dead. For what purpose? The judgment. So not just Christians are raised from the dead, all are raised from the dead. And he will do that with his power that we read about in John 11, and I'll talk about that story. John 11, the next Bible passage, is about the raising of Lazarus. Now, if you don't know your Bible real well, that's a different Lazarus from the one we read about in Luke. The one in Luke is a unbeliever, the rich man. Lazarus was the sister of Mary, the sister, the brother of Mary and Martha, and they were very close friends and disciples of Jesus. Now, what happened is in John 11, we'll read that and I'll tell you the rest of the story. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now the story is this, and many of you already know it. Uh, Lazarus died. And the disciples said, Jesus, let's go. This was your really good friend, brother of Mary and Martha. Let's go and comfort them. He said, no, we're not going to go yet. Because Jesus knew what he was going to do. They waited four days. In other words, after four days, there's no question what? He's dead. Because he knew what he was going to do. And so he showed up at the the place. And uh, this is part of the conversation that took place. And then he says, well, where did you bury him? Well, come and see, Lord. And this is uh, the shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. Which is always very comforting for me at funerals and for my own life. Because if Jesus could cry over the death of a good friend, that also gives us permission to cry too, doesn't it? Because when we cry at the funeral of a loved one, that's not a denial of our faith or our hope. It's simply an expression of our what? Our our sorrow and love. And a matter of fact, that's what it says. The Jews said, look how he loved him when they saw the tears. So that's okay. But anyway, he said, we'll remove the stone from the tomb. And they said, Lord, by now there's going to be a stench. He's been there four days. I'll show you the glory of God. So they remove it. And here's my point to tie in with what we're saying at this point. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came forth all wrapped up in those burial cloths. and says, take off the burial cloths and let him go. Now my point is, the very power that Jesus was able to call Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is going to use the same power to call everybody from the dead. Doesn't matter how they died, whether they were eaten with an animal or blown up in a war, he'll call Everybody. Now, don't worry about that. People sometimes, and I don't want to offend you, but ask the silliest questions. If God made everything out of 
nothing, simply by willing it into existence, he's not going to have any problem putting the parts back together, okay? So don't worry about that. That's just childlike thinking. He made the whole world out of nothing to say, let there be. So he's, he's going to do this. So the same power that he calls forth Lazarus from the dead, he's going to call forth everybody, believers and unbelievers from the dead. Now look at Job 19. This is interesting because this is a passage in the Old Testament. I know that my Redeemer lives. Remember, and so that you've been with me all these weeks. He's thinking of the seed of the woman, right? Who's going to come from the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, descendants, land, and from the descendants and land. Seed of the woman. That's who Job's thinking about. I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand on the latter day on the earth. In other words, in Job's day, the Savior had not yet come. But he knew one day the Savior would come. And even though after my skin, worms destroy this body, his body's going to go back to the what? To the dust. Yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now let's pause there. If the worms eat his dead body, yet in his flesh he's going to see God. What's the, even though the words aren't used, what's the only conclusion you can come to that he's believing in? The resurrection. If worms are going to eat his dead body, yet he's going to see the Savior in his flesh, he has to be implying the The resurrection. And then he says, Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. Now the phrase, and not another, he means the very same Job who lived, and the very same Job who died, and the very same Job who worms ate his body, that very same Job would be raised from the dead to see his Savior on the day of the resurrection. Not some other Job, the same Job. Okay, uh, Philippians 3, uh, 20 and 21. This is Paul speaking to the church at Philippi. The Lord Jesus Christ will change our lowly body to be like His glorious body. I just preached on this not, not too long ago. Here's the point, and then we'll look at the passages, and then I may explain a little bit more. We're going to be raised up from the dead, but not with this lowly body. You know, and that's good news, isn't it? Our body's going to be changed because, as I told you, and I'll show you the passage, I haven't done it yet, we're going to be in a new world, a new universe. No sin, no death, no problems, and we're going to have a body that will last forever. Okay? So our body, this body has to be changed and it has to be transformed from a lowly body to be like a body Jesus already has. Think about it. He, he was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, and he still has the same body. Well, that's the kind of body you and I are going to have. He will change our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Let's look up a, a couple other passages. Romans eight, eleven. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Now go to 18, we'll do 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. I prefer the phrase to us rather than in us. The creation awaits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That means on the day of the resurrection. For the creation was subjected to frustration. When did that happen? Garden of Eden. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
The creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God. In hope, 21, the creation itself will be what? Liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, even though you may not be able to see it clearly right now, he's saying, yeah, that's right. This whole corrupt world is going to be changed into a better world one day, on the day of the resurrection. 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Yeah, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanoes, etc., etc. Right up to the present time, not only 23, but we ourselves, we Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the what? The redemption of our bodies. That hasn't happened yet. Your body has not yet been redeemed in the fullest sense. When's it going to be redeemed? The day of the resurrection. When it's going to be changed to be like Christ's body. Verse 24. For in this hope, the hope of what? The resurrection and having a redeemed body. We were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? We don't have this yet, do we? We still have what kind of a body? A lowly body. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently or sometimes maybe not so patiently. Okay, we have another one there. 1 Corinthians 15, in your green booklet, 1 Corinthians 15, 15, uh, 51 to 52. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm a, then I need to move on. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Now, if you want to read just one, one chapter about the resurrection of the body, just one chapter, read 1 Corinthians 15. It's the lengthiest discussion of the resurrection from the dead in the whole New Testament. But we're just going to look at 51 and 52. Okay? Listen, I tell you a mystery. In other words, you wouldn't know this if I didn't tell you. We will not all sleep. What he means by that, that's a euphemism. We're not all going to die. But we'll all be changed. Now, here's the point. When Jesus comes back, the people who are alive will never experience physical death. If Jesus Christ came back right now, you and I would never physically die. That's what he's saying. But what does he say, however? But we'll all be what? We'll all be changed in a flash, in a, t- a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. The last trumpet means the last chapter in the history of the universe. Okay? Now, in a flash, uh, you know how lightning flashes across the sky? Well, and it's gone, right? Blink your eyes. That's how fast this is all going to happen. This is not going to be a long, drawn-out process. Because what did I tell you is going to come to an end when Jesus comes back? We, our very first point. Second point. What's going to come to an end when he comes back? Time. Time. This isn't a long, out, drawn-out process. It's all going to happen. As all, I'm speaking to you sequentially, because that's the only way, you know, first we have to have this and then this, but it's all going to happen as fast as you can blink your eyes. And so we're all going to be changed. The dead will be raised what? Imperishable. And we'll all be changed. And it goes from there. In other words, if Jesus Christ came back right now, and I'm only going to speak about Christians, okay? okay? If Jesus Christ came back right now, all the Christians would be raised from the dead in their new glorified body, and you and I would be instantaneously changed from toe to head into our new glorified body. 
You get that? So we're not all going to sleep. Somebody's going to be alive when Jesus comes back. But whether we're dead or alive when he comes back, all Christians will be what? Changed. From our lowly body to be like his glorified body. Now, I'd like to say more, but I'm watching the clock. I'm going to have to move on and maybe can do more uh, during the review. But let's just say from this we learn, when Christ returns, he'll raise up all the dead, believers too, and unbelievers, reuniting their souls with their former bodies. The bodies of believers will be like the body of the risen Christ, incorruptible, strong, and perfect. And a real quick note, in case somebody's thinking about it, the, bo- the, the Bible says next to nothing. There's one passage, I don't want to take time to look it up, but it says next to nothing on the body of the, resurrect- the resurrected body of unbelievers. And there might be a variety of reasons for that. Who cares for you, right? What's, what's the point other than idle curiosity? So I can't tell you much about the bodies of the unbelievers. Number four, what will follow the resurrection? Okay, now we've got the resurrection of the dead. You can write the word judgment. because And remember, this is going to happen as fast as you can blink your eyes. After everybody's raised from the dead, there's going to be a judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must, with your shook of the word, all. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, don't let that threaten you or intimidate you if you have faith in Jesus. Sometimes we take the word judgment only in a narrow sense, meaning condemnation. But to judge something means you can come to one of two conclusions, right? When a judge judges something, he determines whether it's going to be guilty or in it. Same with the judgment day. Everybody, believer and unbeliever, will still appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Acts 17:31 we saw this earlier, he Jesus or God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. The phrase in righteousness. There's not going to be any mistakes. You know judges make mistakes, don't they? God's not going to make any mistakes. Jesus won't make any mistakes. Judges can be bribed, he won't be bribed, he won't be manipulated. This will be a fair judgment based upon what God has already told us. John 3:18, this is Jesus speaking, he who believes is what? Would you highlight or underline that? Not what? See, that's why if you believe in Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. Of ju- you don't have to be afraid of death. And you don't have to be afraid of judgment day. Now think about it this way. Uh, first of all, uh, write down um, where I want this. Um, well, that, I guess that's good. Above the word condemned, write down Romans 8.1. You've seen this passage too. Romans 8.1, you might remember if I quote it real fast. There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now here's my point. If we have forgiveness of sins in our this world, right? That means he doesn't condemn us, right? Well, on the judgment day, God's not going to say, You know, Michael, when you were down here on this earth, I forgave you. But I've changed my mind since then. And I'm, I'm not... You get my point? If we're forgiven in this life, if there's no condemnation already in this life through faith in Christ, then that's what's going to be the judgment on the day of the resurrection. No condemnation. Right? So you don't have to be afraid of the judgment day because of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But look what he says. But he who does not believe is what? Condemned already. So if somebody doesn't trust in Jesus in this world, they're already condemned in this world. And on the day of the resurrection, it'll be the same judgment. They will be condemned on the judgment day just as they were condemned in this world by God for not having faith in Christ. Matthew 25, this is Jesus. Jesus is speaking, the king, and Jesus is the king. The king will say to those on the right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's going to be the new world I'm going to show you about later on tonight. Then he'll say to those at his left hand, Depart from me. That's not good. 
you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now this eternal punishment means not just in their soul but now they've been raised from the dead so it's going to be their whole person. And we know very little about that condition just like we know very little about the resurrected condition too. But the words are clear. And then we have Luke 16, 23, which uh, we've already looked at this. The author, in my opinion, shouldn't have this Bible passage here. Why not? Because the, the, the torments in hell here is this. And that's not what we're talking about. That was under point one. Now what we're talking about is this. And so he's misplaced the passage here, in my opinion. But look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer punishment of eternal ruin, cut off from the what? Presence of the Lord and the splendor of His might. Eternal damnation is kind of hard to understand, but it's being cut off completely from the love of God. Depart from me. Cursed are you. Away from the presence of God. And that's what the essence of hell is. Whenever the Bible describes hell as fire or darkness, those are just figures of speech to say, you don't want to go here. The real essence of damnation is not hell and fire, but it's punishment and agony and being punished and separate from God. Now, look how we go full circle. Let's go back to the cross. And Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you... Now you can see what I was trying to tell you. Why when he said, why have you forsaken me? That's the biblical definition of hell. Cut off from God. That's when Jesus was being punished while he was alive on the cross for the sins of the world. And he suffered hell on the cross. Was forsaken of God on the cross so that everybody who trusts in him never has to worry about that. Because there's no condemnation in him. But if people don't trust in him... If they won't let Jesus suffer hell for them, then they will suffer hell eternally. So from this we learn, having raised the dead, Christ will judge all people. His verdict will be just. The believer's body and soul will accompany Christ in this new world I'm going to describe to you. The unbelievers will be condemned to eternal sorrow, pain, and separation from God in hell. Now, real quickly, again, I'm watching the clock, so forgive me. Would you highlight degrees of punishment? And we're going to look up these passages really quickly. Most people are surprised to find out, I won't say everybody, but most, not everybody's going to be punished the same in hell. And when you think about that for a moment, forget the Bible just for a moment, well, that makes sense. Do we punish human beings the same in our world? No. Their punishment is based upon what? What they did, what they knew, how old were they? That's the way God is. God is going to punish people in hell, that's true. But they will suffer differently according to what they knew or didn't know, what they did or didn't do. Okay? That's what we're going to look at here. So degrees of punishment. Let's look at Luke 12, the one right in your green booklet there. This is a parable that Jesus was telling. And at the end of the parable, this is what he says. Luke 12, 47, 48. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with what? Many blows. 
He knew his master's will. He knew what he was supposed to be doing, and he didn't do it. And he's going to be beaten, remember this is a parable, with many blows. But the one who did not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with what? Few blows. In other words, he still deserves to be what? Still deserves to be punished, but but God will take in consideration what he knew or didn't know, and the punishment will be less. Okay? Let's look at uh, the Matthew 11 passage. Matthew 11, 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. Now, these would be uh, Jewish cities. Because why? They did not what? Repent. This is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, Chorazin. That was a Jewish city. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That was a Jewish city. If the miracles that were performed in you, in these Jewish cities, and they were expecting the what? The Messiah, the seed of the woman, right? And they didn't believe. If they had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, those were non-Jewish pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, unbelievers, on the day of the judgment than for you. Now, did you get that? Because Tyre and Sidon, going back to the Luke passage, these are Jews. They knew God's will, right? They knew about the Messiah. And what? There he was right in the middle of them doing miracles. And they what? Re- oh boy, many blows. People of Tyre and Sidon, pagans, not knowing all the truth. Yeah, they're going to be punished, all right. But with few blows. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, Jewish city, you will, be lift- will you be lifted up to the skies? Oh no, oh no. You'll go down to the depths. For if the miracles were performed that were performed and you had been performed in what? Sodom. It would have remained to this day. In other words, it wouldn't have been destroyed because they would have repented. But I tell now watch this, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of the judgment than for you. Again, going back to the Luke passage. People of Capernaum, Jews, they had the they had the Bible, the Word of God, the promise of the Messiah, and they said no to Jesus. Many blows. Sodom, yeah, they deserve to be punished. But they didn't have all these advantages. They'll be punished all right, but with fewer blows. Now, let me give you two more. I'm going to have to go on. Let me get, let me do, and I'll get, then let me get George. You, you have to read these on your own because I'm going to save a little bit of time. You can read these on your own too. Write them down real quick, and then I'll get George's comment or question. Uh, Matthew 23, 15. Matthew 23, 15. And Luke 20, 47. So Luke 20, 47. Matthew 23, 15, you can read those on your own. I'm, I'm going to have to skip those to save a little bit of time. George, please. Well, the idea of eternal life and desiring eternal life is not to see a loved one, your favorite dog, or not to have pain. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of separation from God. Yes, from God. absolutely. Most people, and I don't want to offend anybody, most people have a very childish understanding about heaven. Well, is there going to be golf courses there? You're shooting way too low. You're shooting way too low in your expectation, you know. And I don't want to be mean, but that's the way it is. Yeah. You're going to see God. And you're going to have powers beyond your wildest imagination that I haven't had time to talk about tonight. And you're worried about a golf course? Yeah. You're right. So that's all I do on that one. But people woefully misunderstand. 
Yeah. Okay, go to the next page. Now, before we get to heaven, I need to do a little clarity here. Because our author, in my opinion, does not do the best job he could do here, which is common in Christian churches. Okay? So, we're going to talk about a new world. Because if you have a new resurrected body, a body has to have a place to live, right? And that's where we're going to talk about God's going to destroy this whole universe, and He's going to create a new universe, and it's going to be in this new universe without sin or death or anything that we're going to live in our new immortal glorified body filled with all kinds of powers. So here we go at the top of the page, uh, write down these passages. And this is about a new world. Here we go. Number one, Isaiah, you can abbreviate IS if you wish, Isaiah 6517. Number two, Isaiah 6622. Number three, Matthew 1928. Number four, Romans 8, 20 and 21. Number five, 2 Peter 313. And the last one, number six. Revelation 21, 1. So you can see there's a lot of passages talk about this, right? We're going to look about this new heaven and this new earth. So let's just run through these passages quickly, and then we'll go back to uh, uh, question number five. So the first one, the first two are in Isaiah, about the middle of your Bible. Now remember to, to set this up. Remember God created a perfect world, right? He's all done creating, and everything was very good. Then Adam and Eve fell into sin, and everything goes wacko. Cursed is the ground because of you, and so forth. Okay, Isaiah 65, 17. We'll do this kind of quickly. You'll get the point. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Behold! That's supposed to get a person's attention. That's a very clear Hebrew word there. Behold! Watch this. Listen up. I will create new heavens, and heavens here means universe, and a new earth. The former things, the things of this universe, I'm adding there, will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. Next chapter, chapter 66. 66, 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I, will, that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. Endure before means to me, last for what? Ever. So will your name and descendants endure, meaning forever. Okay, now let's go to the New Testament. Go to Matthew. Matthew 19, 28. Now we have a little bit different language here, but you're going to see very easily it's the same idea. Matthew 19, 28. And it's very, very brief. Jesus said to them, he's talking to the disciples, I tell you the truth at the what of all things? Re- renewal of all things? Do you know what a renewal is? Things are going to be made what? Over again. Made, made new when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. Well, when's the Son of Man going to sit on His glorious throne? The day of the resurrection, the return of Jesus and all that. So He's saying, yeah, I'm going to come back and there'll be, everything will be made new. A new heaven and a new earth. Okay, go to Romans 8. We saw this earlier. We'll just revisit it quickly. Romans 8, 20 and 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 8, 
20 and 21, you saw this earlier. For the creation was subjected to frustration. In other words, the world just doesn't work the way God originally planned it to work. Everything always goes, you know, the Peter principle, right? If something's going to go wrong, it will go wrong and so forth. Was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In the hope what the creation itself will be what? Liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, this old universe will be destroyed and God will give us a new one. Alright, uh, 2 Peter 3.13, towards the back of your New Testament. A little bit before uh, the book of Revelation. You got Revelation and 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John and 2 Peter 3.13. 2 Peter 3.13. 2 Peter 3.13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth, the home of? No more sin. A home of righteousness. Now, let's see how smart you are. But in keeping with his promise, what promise of God is Peter thinking about? And you heard it earlier when we went through these passages. What promise? I'm thinking of a Bible passage. It's okay if you don't get it. Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. Right? That was written 700 years before Christ. That's the promise. He said, God through the prophet Isaiah promised us a new heaven and a new earth. That's where we're putting our hope. And of course, Jesus talked about it too. Okay, real quickly, I gotta, I'm, I'm watching the clock. Forgive me. Revelation 21.1. Revelation 21.1. I'm going to read a little bit more than one. You'll get the flavor of it. And then i got to move on. I'm watching the clock. Revelation 21, 1 and following. Then I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, what? Had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. This is the church he's describing now in figurative language. This is the church. The holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Here's the church. Because who's the groom? Jesus. Church is the bride. This is figurative language. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And the husband is Jesus. Because Jesus has come back. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This world is going to be destroyed and he's going to create a new one. The home of righteousness. Now with that background and I forgive me, I'm going to have to keep going here I'm not going to get done, so please bear with me. I'm going to go through point five uh, relatively quickly. So, Philippians 1.23 this is Paul, I long to go and be with Christ. Now this, this passage in my opinion too is misplaced a little bit because here he's talking about his soul. Remember we talked about that? However, however it is also true on the day of the resurrection who are we going to be with? 
Christ. So that's okay if we put it that way as well. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, Now, he means in this world, in this world, okay, we see by a mirror and we are puzzled. In other words, when we think about these future things, we have all kinds of questions, right? You have more questions about that future world than I have answers, or even the Bible have answers. So we're kind of puzzled about all this, aren't we? But then, on the day of the resurrection, how will we know? Face to face. Remember the Philippians passage? Because when Jesus comes back, our lowly body will be transformed like His glorious body, and we will see Him as He is, as we're going to see. Now, in this world, we learn only what? A part of something. But then I'll know as he has known me. Now, let me make sure you get that last phrase. Okay. Does Jesus know you perfectly right now? Yes, he does. Do you know him perfectly? No. What he's saying in that last line there, just like Jesus perfectly knows you now, on the day of the resurrection, I'm going to say it in a way you'll get it. You won't have any questions on the day of the resurrection because all your answers will, all your questions will be automatically answered. You will know just as he already knows you. Right now he knows you perfectly. Day of the resurrection, that's what you're going to know too. You're going to go from being dumb to really smart. All of us. And because that's the transformation of our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Does Jesus have any questions? No. Well, if our body's going to be like his glorious body, you're not going to have any questions either. You're going to know everything. You're going to be in the very presence of God. Now, 1 John 3, 2, very similar, very similar. Beloved, we are God's children now. Just preached on this last Sunday. We're God's children right now in this world through faith in Christ. Yet it does not yet appear what we shall be. We've got a lot of questions, don't we? But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And what I said in the sermon, I'll just do this very quickly because I'm watching the clock again. I can't imagine the excitement. That split second, that very first moment that we as Christians who put all our hope, all our trust in this man called Jesus, right? All of our eggs are in his basket. And that split second when for the very first time with our own eyes, we see his face. And all the glory of God that's going to be found in that face and all that. It gives me shivers just to think about it. And that's, that's what he's saying there. We shall see him as he is. No more walking by faith. Psalm 17, 15. This is the psalmist. I will behold thy face in righteousness. What he means is, I'm going to see the face of God and I will be sinless. The in righteousness refers to the, to, to the human being. I will see the face of God in righteousness. Remember what Peter say? We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of Righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake, and this is awesome, this is the Old Testament, this is the resurrection, with thy likeness. In other words, we're going to be sinless. How were we created in the image of God? We were sinless, remember Adam and Eve? What did I tell you way back in lesson number three with the fall into sin? We lost the image of God and we became sinners? Well, on the day of the resurrection, we're going to go full circle. Right now, we're starting to put on the image of God through faith in Jesus and starting to live a godly life, but it's what? It's imperfect, unfortunately. Day of the resurrection... Sinless, just like Jesus. Sinless, just like God. The home of righteousness. Isn't that going to be great? No more struggle with sin. No more guilt. No more shame. No, no more disappointing our Lord because we've thought this or done that. Boy, what a great day that's going to be. 
Revelation 21.4, we just saw this, so I'll do it very quickly. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more death, sorrow, crying, neither any pain. The former things are all done away with. Revelation 14.13, they rest from their labors. Very interesting. We already begin the process of this. You might remember the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, forgiveness, peace with God, meaning and purpose to this life. Hope of a much better world to come in the day of the resurrection. And ultimately that will be finalized on the day of the resurrection. No more guilt, no more sin, no more anxiety, no more sadness, no more jealousy, no more hatred. Complete rest. Revelation 7.15. They are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. Serve Him day and night. Uh, let me tell you the joke I always tell in my 7th grade catechism class, and then I'll tell you what this, what this really means. Whenever I come across this Bible passage in the appropriate time to teach my 7th graders, I say, do you know what this means? And I get all excited. I say, you know what this means? It means we're going to be in church forever. <laughs> and it's always so much fun. <laughs> it's always so much fun to watch 7th grade, graders fake happiness. <laughs> The truth is, we don't have a full explanation of what this does mean. But let me say, we can say something. Since there's no sin in the new world, there's no sin, right? Thank God, there's no sin. Whatever we're going to be doing in that new world, and it's beyond our wildest imaginations to even try that, whatever we're going to do, since there's no sin, will will always be in service to God, right? Isn't that the way Adam and Eve started out? Well, they were creating the image of God, which means they perfectly love God and serve God. What got them in trouble is when they started to want to serve themselves. So whatever that passage means, there'll be no self-centered serving in the world to come, right? Everybody will just be living for God, which means, of course, there won't be any divisions or problems because we'll all be on the same page. Do you understand that? And we'll just have to wait and see what that means in detail. And then Psalm 1611, the pre, the, in thy presence there is fullness of joy, right hand pleasures forevermore, emphasizing joy and pleasure. Obviously we don't mean in a sinful sense, but you know, even in this world, we can have joys and pleasures that are not sinful, that bring a smile to our face or, or whatever. For example, sometimes I'll be sitting down on the waterfront and uh, in the summertime, and maybe it's 74 degrees, and I'm watching the ferry boats go back and forth, and there's a gentle breeze, and I'm having a nice lunch down there or something. And I think to myself, and watching the snow-capped mountains on the other side of the ferry boats, and I say to myself, my goodness, if this sin-fallen world can be this wonderful, right? And it can. There's these moments we have even in this sin-fallen world, and we just kind of go, ah, what will this next world be like? That's what it means about joys and pleasures forevermore. We're never going to get to the point in that new world and say, you know, Dave, we've been here 5,000 years. I don't know about you. I'm getting a little bored. What do you think? <laughs> Joys and pleasures forevermore. And, I, well, I don't have enough time to speculate. I may do that during the review next week about what some of these things may be, but I have to move on. Now, let's go to uh, Romans 8.18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. I love this Bible passage because Paul's basically telling you, I can't really describe this to you either. (laughs) So what he's doing, he's saying, however, I want you to think of the worst kind of suffering in this world. Okay? The worst kind. Maybe it's your life. Maybe it's somebody else. You got that picture? Yeah. (laughs) 
compared to what you're going to experience on the day of the resurrection, that's going to be nothing, that suffering. Nothing. The way Martin Luther captured this in his day, he said, if we could sin on the day of the resurrection, which we can't, we can't sin, but if we could sin, once we see on the day of the resurrection the glory that's revealed to us and what we're going to have forever, we might say to ourselves, why didn't I live more for my Lord Jesus in this life? So he's comparing what we do know in this world so that he can say, it's not going to even touch how wonderful it's going to be. If you can put all the sufferings of the world here and the joys and glories of the world to come, the joys and glories of the world far outweigh any suffering in this life. And that's a promise, isn't it? It's a promise. And we put our hope and our faith in that promise. And indeed, that's what often gets us through life when life sometimes gets very difficult, some worse than others. But if there wasn't another world, where would you get meaning if you had severe suffering? But there's another world coming, and you won't even have a memory of whatever you suffer in this life. Remember, we saw briefly that there are going to be degrees of punishment in hell, damnation. Well, you shouldn't be surprised to find out there are going to be degrees of honor in the next world or glory. Now, people often misunderstand this, so let me preface it by saying something, and then I'm going to give you a drawing on the board that may help a little bit. Please listen carefully. The Bible does not say, the Bible does not say that there'll be differences in joy or happiness. That's not what I'm saying. We will all have exactly the same joy and happiness in that next world to come. Well, then what am I saying? What the Bible says, even though we're all going to have the same joy in a way beyond our present ability to understand, in that next world, some will be honored more than others, and it will be based on what they did for the kingdom of God. And even those rewards of honor will be rewards of grace. In other words, they're not saying, hey, you owe me. No, it'll be something God wants to give. And I'm going to give you all the Bible passages here. Okay, now, will there be any jealousy in the next world? So, there's not going to, so if somebody's else honored a little bit more, we're not going to be jealous. Or if somebody's honored a little bit more, there's not going to be any condescension or looking down on people. Okay? Now, let me give you a real quick example, and then we'll look at the passages, and I'll give you my quick drawing. For example, the thief on the cross... As far as we know, he's going to be raised from the dead and go into that new world, isn't he? That's what Jesus said. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, if his soul is with paradise with Christ, that means on the day of the resurrection, his soul is going to be reunited to his raised up body, and he's going to go into that new world with us, right? Now think about the great apostle Paul. Did Paul do anything for the kingdom of God? I think so. If you know anything about it, did he suffer for the kingdom of God? Yes, and according to Eusebius, the first church historian, how he ended up his life, he, his head was cut off by the Roman Empire for being a Christian. Now, here's my point, and we'll see it in the drawing in just a little bit. Both the thief on the cross and the great apostle Paul will have exactly the same joy and bliss. Exactly. But in a way that's beyond my current comprehension, Paul will have more honor in that next world based upon all he did and all his sufferings for the gospel. Whereas the thief on the cross, true, he didn't have the opportunity, but he made a bold confession and he's been in the Bible and all that, but he's not, he didn't do as much for the kingdom as Paul did. Now, a fair God, a just God, by grace, is going to acknowledge Paul. 
at others. And there's not going to be any jealousy or any superior attitudes and all that. Now, let's look at some Bible passages to back some of this stuff up. So go to Luke 19, 11, because I don't want you to be confused on this passage. Luke 19, 11. Here we go. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Verse 12, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. That's Jesus in the parable. He's the Messiah, right? Okay. And then to return. So he called ten of his servants. These are Christians. He says, okay, Jesus says, I'm, re- I'm going into heaven now, but you're left behind. And you have work to do. Are you with me? I'm paraphrasing the parable for you. He gave them ten minutes. In other words, Jesus has given us His Word and all these gifts and things. Now, go make disciples of all nations. Are you following me? That's what's saying in the parable. The king came. He's appointed king. He goes back to heaven. He says, now you guys have work to do until I come back again. This is what the parable is talking about. Put this money to work and said, until I come back. So he's not talking about real money. This is figure of speech for the the Word of God and everything He's given us. Okay, verse 14. But His subjects hated Him. This would be the Jews who didn't believe in Him, right? They rejected Him. A delegation after said, We don't want this man to be our king. Can you hear the Jews saying to Pontius Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. We don't want this man to be our king. 15. He was made king, however. (laughs) That's His sitting down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right on the throne. And he returned home. That's his ascension into heaven. Okay. Then he sent the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. This is his second coming. It's the judgment day. What did you do? The first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. Now remember, this is a figure of speech. Don't take it literally. Okay? But in other words, in that new world, this gentleman, or whoever it is, was going to be in charge of ten cities in the new world on the basis of what he did for the kingdom of God. You following me? Okay. The second one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. Well, that's less than the other guy, right? His man, and what did the master say? Master said, well, you take charge of... Now, is five less than ten? It is, isn't it? Okay. So, he was given less in the world to come based upon what he did with what he had. Did you see that? And then it goes on from there that another guy, then he didn't do anything. He buried it and he gets in real deep trouble. But that's the point we don't need. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 3.8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Maybe we'll start... We'll go... Let's go um, 1 through 9. Put a little bit of context for you. I think we have time. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. Ready? Here we go. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? Verse 5, what after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants. Through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his what? Ah, now can you hear the passage with the minas? Given something to do in the kingdom? Each assigned to his task. I planted the seed. Paul was a missionary. He plants the seed. Apollos watered it. He was a pastor like me. Some other pastor planted this church. Pastor Hillman, 1947. 
Well, I followed him. So Pastor Hillman planted the seed here, and what am I doing as Pastor Lastman? I'm watering the seed. That's what they're, what they're saying here. But who made it grow? God made it grow. So, verse 7, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Now look at verse 8. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Now listen. And each will be rewarded according to, what? His own labor. For we are God fellows workers, you are God's field and God's building. God will take care of that. Okay? He will reward Paul, he will reward Apollos, he'll reward Pastor Hillman, he'll reward pa- Pastor, he'll reward you for whatever you've done in his kingdom. Okay? Let's go to 1 Peter 1:17. 1 Peter, wait towards the back of your New Testament again. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work, what? Impartially. Well, that means there's going to be reward, right? If God is judging your work impartially. Okay, he'll, he'll do that. Now, I'm going to look at two passages that's going to tell you. These rewards that we're going to get, whatever that is, and I still don't know how it's going to show itself, and I still have a picture to show you. They will be rewards of grace, not something to say, hey, you owe me. You know what I did for your kingdom, God? That's not going to be that way at all. How it's going to work out is something like this. God is going to reward us for our, what we've done in his kingdom, and we're going to go, oh, Lord, that was nothing. I, I, I didn't deserve that. No, I want to do this for you. You hear the difference? I want to, okay, well, okay, Lord, if you want to give me that, that's fine. That's the way it's going to be. Let's look up two passages that say that. Uh, Philippians 2.13, start there. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act to will and to act according to His good purpose. In other words, every good thing that we do for God and His kingdom is because why? It's just what it says. Why can we do these things for the kingdom? Because it's God's will. Oh, you're close. Because who's acting in us? It's God Himself who is making us will and to do these things. I don't mean make us, but you know what I mean, that we will and do these things. So how can we brag when whatever we do for the kingdom is all done by God? Now, let's not say this, through us. So it's all by grace, isn't it? Now, here's the last one that kind of clinches it. Luke 17, 7 to 10. This is Jesus speaking. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep, Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now, sit down and eat. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink. Now watch, here's verse 9, here's the clincher. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Verse 10, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should simply say, We are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. And if you've done your duty, do you get brownie points? No. If simply what? Done your duty. And that's where it's going to be on the day of the resurrection when God, in His grace, impartially, awards honors on the basis of what people have done. It's going to be, well, Lord, I, you, did, you don't have to do that. I know I don't have to do that. I know it's just your duty. I want to do this. Okay. Now, here's your real quick uh, diagram or picture. I don't know if it'll help you. <laughs> I hope it does. And then we'll start, start wrapping things up. 
In the Bible, particularly the New Testament, but the Bible in general, the world to come is often pictured as a, a great feast, a banquet, you know, with food and drink and, and laughter and happiness and all that came from the ancient world. So what I'm going to draw here, I want to pretend we're looking down on a banquet hall. could be ancient or modern, and we're looking down on it like this. That's just a wonderful, festive thing. So we're looking down on a banquet hall. And this is the entrance. This is the entrance into the banquet hall. And of course, in the banquet hall, you're going to have a large table. Okay, remember we're looking down from the ceiling this way. And so there's going to be all kinds of wonderful food and drink on here, and flowers, and just everything wonderful, and plates of food, and everybody's just having a great time. Okay, and people are sitting around this table. Enjoying this meal. Okay. I thought I had another color here. Just a minute. And this is where Christ is sitting. Now, kind of go along with me. If you were talking about seats of honor, generally speaking, you would agree, these are going to be the seats of honor, aren't they? Because you're kind of sitting what? Closer to Christ. Uh, So just kind of go along uh, with that imagery. Even though that's kind of a more honorable seat, is everybody at the table in the presence of Christ? Yeah. Is everybody enjoying the same meal? Yeah. Is everybody having the same joy and happiness? Yeah. But in this little illustration I'm trying to show you, yet, see, with the illustration, maybe the Apostle Paul is sitting here, and maybe the thief on the cross is sitting here, because it's more honorable to sit here on the basis of what Paul did. And yet the thief is enjoying the very same presence of Christ, enjoying the same fellowship with everybody, and enjoying the same wonderful meal. And we'll just have to wait. There's so many things we don't know exactly on the day of the resurrection. So I don't know what this means. We'll just have to wait, and there's not going to be any jealousy or anything like that. So same joy, same bliss, same happiness. But in a way I don't comprehend different honors based upon what was done for the kingdom of God in this world. Okay, uh, we can do the rest of it pretty quickly. So let me pause here if there's any question on that. I know it's maybe some new concepts. And we can always do it during the review too. Well, let's kind of finish up real quickly then, and then we'll see if there's any questions there. From this we learn heaven is being with Christ, seeing Christ face to face. Most intimately, the fullest possible measure, knowing Christ, experiencing Christ's love, being like Christ, like God, pure, sinless, holy, freedom from all ills, fullness of joy, perfect worship and service to God, glory forever. Sort of in a way, uh, Eden restored. Number six, since Christ has prepared so great a salvation for all for me, what must be my high aims as long as I live in this world? Revelation 2.10, be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses, and that's going to be kind of the point of my sermon on Sunday, that we want to witness because the way I sometimes say it, I don't know if I made this up or I got it from somebody. <laughs> sometimes you're in the ministry the long time, you get, did I make that up or did I get it from somebody? But the way I say it, and I hope it's a way you can relate to, the reason I want to tell other people about Christ, I want them to know what I know. I want them to have what I have. How can I, with what I know and what I have, not tell other people? 
You know, it's like what I'm going to say in the sermon. I'll give away the sermon just a little bit uh, tonight because I'm thinking this is what I'm going to go with. At the beginning of the sermon, I say, can you imagine how people would feel if scientists in the medical community found a cure for cancer and then didn't tell anybody? Well, we've got a cure for sin, death, and damnation. Shouldn't we tell people? If, if, we would, if we'd be disappointed if they held back a cure for cancer, how can we hold back about victory over sin, death, and damnation? And that's the message of the Christian church. I want people to know what I know. I want people to have what I have. And that's the whole function of the Christian church then, to do that, to be witnesses. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. As long as I live in this world, he gives me meaning and purpose and hope. So from this we learn my high aims in life must be to be faithful to Christ. He's my heaven. To witness for Christ, I can't keep the good news about him to myself. And to live for Christ because he loved me, gave himself for me, etc. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.